are blessed this morning. I'm not that loud. Uh, we are, we're blessed this morning to have uh, Jack Peterson III with us. He goes by Jay. He's a student at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's pursuing his Master's of Divinity in Christian ministry. Anything further, you're going to have to ask him. Uh, so if you'll welcome him and allow him to preach to us this morning, he's going to be preaching from the book of Haggai. Uh, first off, I want to say thank you all for uh, allowing me to come worship with you all um, and for coming up to beautiful Virginia. As I said, I'm from, I currently live in Wake Forest. So we don't get anywhere near the beautiful rolling mountains and hills and all the greenery up here. Uh, so absolutely love being up here. Uh, love the drive up. As we look at the book of Haggai, there's some kind of interesting points to it. It's really an odd book. It's one that a lot of times we don't look at very often. It's honestly one that, to be honest, a lot of us kind of forget to even in the Bible. Um, and there's kind of a couple reasons for its peculiarity. Number one, it's actually one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's the second shortest in the New Testament. Obadiah is the only other one that's shorter than it. Um, and actually, this has led some commentators to call it the minor of minor prophets. Secondly, Haggai is also really unique in its narrative. Um, only Haggai and Zechariah actually give records of Israel being obedient. Uh, so much throughout the Old Testament, we see God has to judge Israel. They're obedient for a little while, then they fall away again. And God judges them. They're obedient. They fall away again. And with Haggai, that's not the case. Uh, Haggai, they actually, we get to see a lot more obedient Israel than we normally do. And it's partly because of this peculiarity that I think it gives this book um, some really great insight into kind of how we are as the American church today. As you look at the book itself, it's actually set within the time period of uh, Ezra. Um, it's actually five short messages from God to uh, his remnant people who have come back to rebuild the temple. Um, but in order to understand what's going on, we have to back up a little bit. We've got to go back to Saul, David, and Solomon. Um, remember these three characters, these are the three big kings of Israel. They led through Israel through its golden age. And Solomon, being the height of that golden age, had the most wealth, had the, most, had the largest army, um, and then the greatest part of all of Solomon's reign was his temple. Um, built this big, glorious, beautiful temple. However, after Solomon dies, Israel splits, and then Babylon actually invades, destroys the temple, and takes the people of Israel as captives into Babylon. This is where we get the stories of Daniel and um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all those stories. And we see through... Um, we see all that through Second Kings and then through some of the earlier minor prophets, as well as the, um, all three of the major prophets. However, after 50 years, Persia actually comes and conquers Babylon and inherits the Israelite exiles. Um, they actually inherit the Israelite slaves. And through the book of Ezra, we actually see King Cyrus of Persia releasing the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, um, which is really incredible to have a non-Israelite king actually giving orders and giving supplies to rebuild the temple. So for Israel, this is a big deal. This is huge. This is, we get to be Israel again. The height of our identity, our temple, gets to come back. Um, however, when they get back, you know, they start off doing really, really well. They start building the temple, but after 16 years, or for 16 years, they end up stopping, and they end up um, mainly because it seems like other countries were persecuting them um, or were attacking them. It looks like Samaria probably was the biggest one of these um, countries that were messing with them. The same Samaria that's the woman at the well with Jesus about 500 years earlier. Um, so for 16 years, they just leave it at the foundation and they stop working on the temple. Uh, as we look a little bit more, uh, Haggai himself, we don't know much about. The author of the book and the 
um, prophet that's speaking and the person that's actually named after. We don't really know much about him. He's called a prophet and the messenger of the Lord in Ezra 5 and 6. Um, he's called a prophet of the Lord in, in his own book, Haggai. Um, so we don't, and we're not told anything about his father, family, or nation. Um, we assume he's Israelite because he seems to identify with the Israelite people. And we also assume that he's actually a little bit older because it seems like he actually remembers that original temple of Solomon, um, which would place him at least 66 years since, he, since that time period. So we're expecting him to probably be in his mid to late 70s um, in order to remember what that temple looked like. Um, but the biggest thing from Haggai himself is actually his name. Uh, his name means festive or festival. Well, festivals were the big, biggest part of Israelite worship. Um, it, the whole Israelite worship was built around a calendar, and there was three major festivals that they, worshiped, they had every year, the Passover, Feast of Booths, Feast of Weeks. Um, so the idea that uh, Haggai's name is attached to uh, the worship theme is a really big indicator for us because worship's going to be a major, major part of this book. Um, as we look kind of at the tone of the book, it's really interesting how God's presented here because 14 different times we see the phrase Lord of Hosts show up. And this isn't a term we really think of as much. Um, however, it's a militaristic term, very, very similar to our commander-in-chief. Hosts were armies. So really what the, you know, kind of the New Testament illustration of this is Matthew 26, where Jesus actually threatens to call down um, 12 legions or 12,000 angels um, during his arrest scene. That should be kind of the image we have when we hear the phrase Lord of Hosts. It should be a very encouraging thing if you're on your God's side. It should be a very discouraging thing if you're against him. Um, it's kind of like having the big, big brother if you're with him. It's kind of like having the really big enemy if you're against him. Um, another big thing we see is the main speaker throughout this book is God. Basically, the entire book is thus says the Lord, or thus says the Lord of hosts, even, at several occasions. Um, and very, very few characters even get a handful of words outside of God himself. Most of the book is just quotes from God. So as we look at the book itself, as I mentioned earlier, it's five messages. Um, they take place over four separate occasions and takes place over about three to four months of time. One of the really nice parts of this book, each one's dated and given a specific audience. So each message is a little bit easier us to kind of place and understand exactly what's going on. We actually have a clean timeline, which is nice. It's not something I often get throughout the Bible. Message number one, um, this is actually getting into the book itself now. Message number one is chapter one, verses um, one through 11. It's the first 11 verses of the book. And I'm not really going to have time to go through and read the entire book to you. So what we're going to do is I'm going to summarize each, each section, um, kind of give a little explanation and show you how it applies to us. First one, um, it's dated the first month or the first day of the sixth month of the year 520. Um, it's the second year of King Darius, which we've dated about 520. Uh, it's written to both the governor and the high priest, so the leaders of Israel. And in this message, God starts off by saying, you know, you have these houses, you've, you've done all these things, you've been here 16 years, you've built houses, you've built um, farms, you've built economy, um, you've built families, but my temple sits undone. My temple sits at nothing but a foundation. Um, so as a result of this, God's actually removed their ability to find comfort. Um, God words this as, you'll eat and still be hungry, you'll drink and still be thirsty, um, you'll put coins in a purse and as if it has holes in it. Um, no matter how much you have, you'll always want more. And this is... is um, 
it's kind of an interesting time for Israel because throughout, like I said earlier, the Old, Old Testament, throughout it, we see Israel very much disobedient. Um, very, they'll break God's law. They'll worship other gods. Um, they'll be wicked to other nations. And we just see some very, very evil things that Israel does. However, in this one, the rebellion is very, very quiet. Um, they actually do, quote-unquote, good things. They have jobs. They build families. They build houses. Um, they even do sacrifices, as we'll see later on in the book. They do really good things, but they're not doing the good thing God commanded them to do, the only thing that really mattered, which was build his temple for them. And as a result, it's not that God's blessing is, fine, I'm going to take everything from you. It's I'm going to make it so you can't enjoy them. The reason you eat and you're still hungry is because I haven't blessed it. The reason you can never accumulate enough wealth is because I haven't blessed it. Um, you're discontent because you aren't finding me. And the meaning of this passage is really, really easy for us to see. God wants Israel to obey him and to fill the ministry he's called them to do, which in their case was build the temple. So as we look at this passage, we're kind of forced to ask ourselves, how have we forgotten God's calling, um, even if it is in our pursuits of good things? Or in other words, to put it in the words of Revelation 2, 4, have we forgotten our first love? Have we forgotten what God's called us to do? Have we forgotten God himself, even in our attempt at possibly even ministry? Our second message, um, about a month later, uh, 23 days actually, um, so it's the 24th day of the sixth month um, in 520. This one's um, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, and it's addressed to uh, the governor, the high priest, and the people, so basically everybody, the whole remnant, all the people that have come to build Israel, uh, rebuild Israel, are all part of this message. And this is actually really, to me, this is kind of what makes this book really unique. Israel listened. Israel's actually starting to work on the temple. God just said, do it, and they do it. God didn't have to judge them. God didn't have to threaten them. He just said, do it, um, which is something that's very, very unique for Israel. We don't see that very often, um, to actually see Israel wanting to serve. And as a result, God promises to bless them. He promises to be with them. And in many cases, I kind of wonder if we kind of misunderstand the language of blessing um, and cursing. And we're not alone. Israel misunderstood it a lot as well. Uh, so has most of the church history. So often we want to mistake wealth, family, comfort, things of that nature as God's blessings. And they are. All good gifts come from the Father, as James tells us. However, they're not God's ultimate blessing. God's ultimate blessing, if you look throughout the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, is his presence. In the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve. He was with them. Um, the original curse was, I can't be with you in the same way. Um, you're going to have to leave my garden. There's now a separation between us. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we constantly see God saying, I am with my people. I am with my people. Or, I'm not with you because you're not obeying. Um, and as we kind of progress through, we see... Starting Isaiah 7.4 says this, Matthew 1.23 then restates it, where Jesus is actually called Emmanuel, God with us. Um, so Jesus is the height of this, God's presence, where God himself is walking on earth. And then Je Jesus says he sends one greater than himself after that, the Holy Spirit, um, where God is with his people at all times. 
and we can look ahead all the way to Revelation where we see the presence of God to the point that, there's a, that, we, that God's people live in a city that has no temple and no sun because God himself is there and neither of those two things are needed anymore. So we have to understand the biggest thing when God's talking about blessing here is his presence. Um, even though the people had help, wealth, and comfort, they were not blessed. They were actually cursed. Um, however, through their obedience, God promises to be with them. Um, so that's where the blessing gets flipped, uh, or the cursing gets flipped to a blessing. So as we kind of look at this for ourselves, we have to ask, what good reasons have we used to ignore God's calling? Are we saying our families? Are we saying our jobs? Or even our service to the church? Oftentimes, we'll even try and veil this as a way of, if I were to listen, I would have to do something bad. God, if I were to do what you're calling me to do, I would have to walk away from my, I would have to, I wouldn't be providing for my family the same way. God, if I were to do what you're, do, you're calling me to do, I would have to give up these friendships you've had me build. God, if I were to have that conversation with that, that lost person, I may lose their friendship altogether. Um, so many, many times we, we, we try and even veil this disobedience as obedience and, and trying to say, oh God, you don't really understand. I don't really think you know what's best. I think I do. Therefore, I'm going to do it my way. To which God has a very clear word. That's not the right way to do it. Um, however, God does promise his presence to those who obey, his presence to those who are in his ministry. And I, I'm kind of forced to ask the question, what better way could we ever serve our bosses, our families, our communities, our world, other than to bring God's presence to them? If God's presence is the greatest thing in our life, and that's the greatest blessing God can give, is it not better for us to do what God's called, be in his presence, and then be around the people that we're, so, that we're trying to use as excuses not to do God's work? As we look at message three, um, this one's chapter two, verses one through nine, um, about another month ahead. Now it's the 21st day of the seventh month. Um, this one, again, addressed to everybody, the governor, the high priest, and all the people. So the whole remnant is, is spoken to. And Israel has finished. They've built the temple. They did what they were called to do, which is awesome. It's a great thing. And it's, again, not something we see very often. However, some of the people in the congregation who are old enough to remember Solomon's temple know that the first temple was a whole lot bigger, it was a whole lot prettier, had a lot more gold, had a lot more silver. Um, and they're really discouraged by this. It really it, it hurts them that they're not building the same temple they had. The identity that Israel had was the temple. Well, the second temple's nowhere near as big, and God even actually agrees with them. Nope, it's not. You're right. It is smaller. There is less in it. However, God's promise is reiterated from the first two messages. I am with you. And God actually promises that the second temple is greater. Even though it's smaller, even though there's less in it, God promises to shake the nations and bring in all the gold and silver he'd ever want for it. He promises to do, uh, to, to, that his might will get the glory. Um, and that he is more pleased with their obedience than he is with what necessarily they can produce. Oftentimes, we kind of fall into the same trap. We, you know, we, also, you know, we always hear about the glory days, which I get it, I'm 25, I don't really have very many glory days to really point towards. However, I absolutely love church history. Um, that is a topic I spend a ton of time reading and a ton of time looking at. And oftentimes, I'll catch myself thinking, 
I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be reading the New Testament and go, oh, well, where are the Peters, the Pauls, and the Jameses today? Or I'll look through church history and say, oh, well, where's the St. Augustines, the Luthers, the Calvins, the Wesleys, the Spurgeons, or even the Grahams? Where are those people today? And oftentimes it's really discouraging to try and think that way. Or we look around and go, okay, well, maybe it's not those glory days of the past, but what about the glory days of those around us? Why isn't our church bigger? Why aren't, you know, why can't we bring in do bigger ministries? Why can't we be doing more here or there? Why can't this be prettier? Why can't, when I sing worship songs, why doesn't it sound prettier? Yes, I can attribute to that one very, very well. <laughs> I don't sing well. Um, and this is the exact same thought process that's going through the mind of the Israelites, especially the older Israelites. Why can't we have the temple we had before? Why can't it be bigger? Why can't it be better? To which... I would also kind of counter with the thought of, yes, but the reason it was, the temple was torn down was because y'all fell into idolatry and because you were mistreating the other nations and because you weren't listening to God. So were they really glory days? Was the past really that much greater? Um, however, God does reiterate the promise from before. I am with you. Nowhere in the Bible does, the, does God call us to be the next biggest anything. Nowhere in the Bible did, it, did God ever call Israel to build the bigger temple. At least not this Israel. Um, that was never the command. The command was to build the temple. God didn't need a bigger temple for them. In fact, God doesn't need anything from them or us. All that God asks, actually, in fact, all that God commands of us and them is obedience. And God assures them that by his own power, he will receive the glory due to himself. It's not us that builds the church. It's not us that grows the church. It's not us that grows our ministries. It's not us that grows all that we do. All good things come from the Father. All growth, all power comes from the Father. But if it doesn't grow the way we expected it to, it's because it's God's plan and his power to do it. So as we serve, we may get discouraged um, especially when we look around us and things aren't what we expected. And here, God's showing us that the end result is never our concern. Our job isn't to worry about how many people we reached. Um, our job is to reach as many as we can, but our job isn't to you know, pick up the biggest numbers or to build the biggest um, building or to have the greatest ministries or to have the prettiest family or whatever. Um, that's never the goal. Our goal is obedience. And our obedience is the worship God's looking for. Throughout this entire book, if you haven't caught it yet, God's very much attaching obedience to worship. Your greatest worship is your obedience. Um, and if you haven't caught it yet, we'll definitely see it in the next point. Um, and, and so we have to be constantly reminding ourselves, God never asked us to produce results. God asked us to be obedient and let him worry about the results. There's so many stories throughout church history, um, especially in mis missionary stories, of people who never saw the fruits of their labor, people who do great works that end up reaching millions, but in their lifetime they saw nothing. Um, this is so common throughout many, many missionaries um, and throughout many pastors as well that we have to be really careful not to worry about results. Um, 
results aren't for us to see, they're for God to worry about. Our, our jobs are simply to be obedient. As we look at message four, um, and this is, in my opinion, really the heart of the book. This is really where God kind of lays out, this is why we're talking about this. Uh, message four is chapter two, verses 10 through 19. Um, the, both four and five are both on the same day, but both the 24th day of the ninth month, so we're now, what's that, 23 days and three months since the beginning of the book. This one's only addressed to the priests, so now we're just going to talk to the religious leaders. And in this section, God actually kind of gives a commentary back to the first part of the book, the first message. God begins by actually asking a really interesting question. Which is contagious, cleanliness or uncleanness? And the answer is uncleanliness. Unclean things defile clean things. Clean things can never clean what's unclean. And God reminds the priests of the cursing that came in the beginning of the book. And he actually, he actually creates this idea and, and paints this picture of the reason you were cursed is because all the worship you were doing was tainted by your disobedience. You were not worshiping purely. O if obedience is your greatest worship, disobedience will taint that worship. Therefore, all the uncleanness of your disobedience is actually tainting the cleanliness of what you're trying to worship. And when you actually read this passage, it could actually be kind of a tongue twister because um, it talks about does clean things make unclean things clean or do unclean things make clean things clean? Or unclean, sorry. <laughs> you see my point. Um, however, the, 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 and this is a very important question and it sounds kind of confusing when you first hear it. Um, it's a whole lot of clean, unclean, clean, unclean type language to it. And especially in the New Testament, we don't think of clean, unclean terms very often. It's just not something that's really ingrained as much into our thought process. So a really easy way to illustrate this one is let's, let's try and think of one of the cleanest things in our society. And I'm sure every woman in here is going to hate me because of this illustration, but fine. A wedding dress. Wedding dresses are something we absolutely, I mean, we do a ton of work for. They're bagged and they have zip seals on them and they're, you know, air taken out of the bags so that they're super protected. And we do all we can to try and protect these things to keep them as pure white as they are because they are the cleanest color we have, white. So, since we're in lovely Virginia and y'all have that nice red mud, let's take that wedding dress and go throw it in it. What happens to the puddle? Does that puddle become white or does the dress become red? The dress becomes red, right? And we know, all of us know, there is nothing you can do to get that out. We don't have chemicals that can save the dress. We don't have chemicals that can do, you know, even if we can get it clean, either A, it's not strong enough to get all the discoloration out, or B, it, the chemicals are so strong they're going to eat the fabric. Um, so forever, that dress is not only dirty, but ruined. It cannot be used again. And this is the idea that God's showing towards the priests. The disobedience of Israel in not doing what God called them to do had made their worship unclean, unusable, ruined. And the thing for us is we're in the exact same boat. Our disobedience, or even our delayed obedience, if you don't believe me, go read Deuteronomy 1. Delayed obedience is just as bad as disobedience. Forever taints our worship. However, as you read through the rest of the passage, God actually says, because of your obedience, I'm now with you. 
well, how can this be? This is a ruined worship. How can God take a ruined worship and accept it? How could Christ marry a people with a ruined wedding dress? And that's exactly the problem we have to see. Nothing we can do can clean our worship. Nothing we can do can clean our hearts. And this is also where, as New Testament saints, we can shout for joy. Because as New Testament saints, we know of Jesus. Israel knew of Jesus coming, but they didn't quite have all of this the way we have it now, where we understand that Jesus actually lived a perfect life, and in this, he kept a perfectly clean worship. He, in his life, creates the perfectly clean wedding dress. Then in his death, he took away all of the evil, all of the vile and defiled worship, all of the ruined, tainted wedding dresses of our hearts and even Israel's hearts and killed them with himself. So that when he rose from the dead, he actually gives that perfect wedding dress that he created in his life to all of his people, to everyone who's in Christ, to all of his saints. so that they can then have a perfect worship. It's actually the worship of Christ that we do as saints when we worship, because our worship is defiled. Christ's worship is what's clean. It's Christ's worship, Christ's wedding dress that pleases God. And it doesn't stop there. God actually sends the Holy Spirit as a seal upon our hearts, and think of this as like the Scotch guard or that bag that I talked about originally that we can put around the, the wedding dress that we, you know, the vacuum bag seals that we use. Um, think of the Holy Spirit as that, where now the, the dress is covered and sealed so that even when it does get thrown back in that puddle, n- the puddle can't touch it. Um, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It actually seals our hearts to keep it perfectly and forever clean so that forever we never have to worry about having unclean worship in front of God. We never have to worry about having an unclean heart or walking down the wedding aisle at the end of eternity to meet our, our um, groom, Christ, with a ruined dress. Then as we look at message five, um, this one is from the rest of the book, um, chap- for, verse 20, for chapter two, verse 20, through the end of the book. Same day as the last one, um, dated the... 24th day, ninth month, and this one's only addressed to one person, the governor Zerubbabel. Well, Zerubbabel, he's actually, so he's a, in the line of David. He's from the Davidic line of David. Um, and this book closes with a message specifically for him. And God s- says that he will reign terror on all the other nations, but establish Zerubbabel as a signet ring, is the language used here. The other nations did not follow God. Thus, God would judge them. In the same way that God judged Israel's disobedience in the opening of the book, God's going to do so much more against all the nations who never worshipped him or who chose to worship him wrongly. Um, And God judges all who do not worship him purely. The promise to Zerubbabel to make him a signet ring is actually a really interesting one to us. Because a signet ring... It was actually, so it was a ring with a gem on it that had a, et, etchings in it, so it could be pressed against a stone and leave a specific imprint, imprint into it. 
this would act like a signature, so it was a way that they could, um, it was a way that they could validate the authority of a message. It was a way to say, this is absolutely from the person who sent it. So as we look at the two different, kind of the dichotomy of the two different judgments here, we see one group judged for their idolatry and sent to destruction. We see the other one judged for pure worship and sent towards blessing. As the other nations worshipped other gods, God destroyed them. We see this very, very clearly shown in the book of Hosea. Um, Hosea makes it extremely clear as Israel wanted to worship other gods. Those were the very same gods God used to judge them. They wanted to worship wealth. God bankrupted them. They wanted to worship food. God gave them a famine. They wanted to worship war. God sent Assyria to wipe them out. Um, so it's very, very clear God judges according to worship. But as for Zerubbabel and Israel, since they worshiped God, he blessed them with his presence. And we know that Zerubbabel actually is God's eternal, eternal signet ring because being in the Davidic line, Zerubbabel's the last person we really get until Christ. Ten generations later, a son of Zerubbabel is Jesus, God with us. So Zerubbabel acts as the seal of the one to come, the one that is the final authority. And it is not by accident this book ends this way. Today, we have to understand God will judge all people according to their worship unclean worship or worship of false gods will not be accepted and it will deserve death. Only pure worship and only worship that is earned by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ can be accepted before God. And that can only be given to people who are saved by Christ. So as we look at this book as a whole, we have to, there's a stream of logic that I, I just kind of want to make clear. Message one, God calls us to worship him and obey his commands and his callings. Uh, message two, God promises to bless those who worship him fully with his presence. Message three, God calls us to, um, God calls us to obedient worship, not grand act of service. God deserves worship because of who he is, and because he ensures the outcome. Message four, we can only worship with pure hearts, and our disobedience taints that worship. However, only through Christ can we gain that pure heart and worship that we need in order to worship God properly. Message five, God will judge according to worship. Only God deserves worship, and God deserves only pure worship. Anything less deserves death. But God had, has sent Jesus, and um, all who are saved in him are freed to worship God purely forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the ability to learn about you, and thank you so much for sending Christ so that we can worship you. Only you deserve our worship, and only you can give us the ability to worship you. Lord, I pray for all of us in here um, that you move in each of us. For those of you who don't know you, God, I pray that you stir their hearts. Show them what it means to worship you and give them the way to do it. Lord, to those who know you but don't know your call, Lord, I pray that you make it clear, make it, make it absolutely plain to us how we are meant to worship, how we are meant to obey you. 
Um, God, to those who, of us who know and those of us who are running, God, I pray that you judge us, show us where we're running and bring us to our knees. Um, God, pull us back, draw us back to your plan. And to those of us who are obeying, Lord, I pray that you encourage us. Show us yourself. Protect us from discouragement. And God, above all, make your presence known. Lord, we thank you for providing a way for us to be with you forever. In all we do, may you receive the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.